0: Just to remind us of a couple of things as we're getting into Acts 19, Um, Paul is in Ephesus. He has corrected the disciples in Ephesus and taught them more accurately because they did not know about the baptism of Jesus. They only knew the baptism of John. So they had not received the Holy Spirit when they were baptized. So he taught them, they humbled themselves and they submitted to that. So they were baptized. And they receive the Holy Spirit. Then he lays hands on them, and then they have the miraculous gifts that they're able to, to have that is able to kind of confirm the things that, that, uh, that Paul was teaching, is able to confirm in that area that this was true. And there, it stirs up a lot of things. And what we're going to see next is that Paul continues to teach and preach here in, in Ephesus. And there's some pretty unique things that, that we're going to see. So what we're going to look at tonight is verses 8 through 20 of Acts 19. Tomorrow night is going to be primarily the rest of chapter 19. So we're going to have three lessons all on Paul in Ephesus. He was also there for about three years. So there's a lot, a lot that happens. Um, and then what we're actually going to do, just kind of give you a roadmap for the rest of the week. Tuesday night we're going uh, to be looking at some other things in chapter 20. And then, Wednesday night, we're going to look at some things in chapter 20 and 21. So, i uh, just kind of let you know what to expect in the next few days. Okay, so Acts chapter 19, just to, uh, just to set the stage here, we're going to begin in verse 8, and we're going to start reading down through verse 12. Paul entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. So Paul is teaching in the synagogue for three months. I said this morning that usually what he would do is he would find the synagogue or the, the gathering place of usually Jews. He would start there. And he would teach there among them as long as he could until they run him out. Or they just say, hey, get out of here. Uh, we, we're done listening to this. So then he would find other people. Then he would go to the Gentiles usually. That's exactly what happens here. It says that he's speaking boldly. Um, but he also says that it's, he's reasoning. So I could be wrong about this, but it seems like this is some sort of back and forth. If you're reasoning, usually you're not just reasoning with yourself and with a bunch of people. You're reasoning with them. So either he's just teaching them and, and explaining things that he knows that they are thinking and trying to like connect them with, with God's truths or there is some sort of back and forth. Um, It's my opinion that there was some sort of back and forth instead of just a one-sided conversation, but I'm not sure if this was like a debate, I think it was just they were in the habit of in public places reasoning together. Um, It says that he's persuading some people in verse eight, but then it says in verse nine that some become stubborn and continue in unbelief, okay? So it, it works, right, his teaching is effective and some people are persuaded, but of course there's some that are not persuaded. Um, Of course there's some that don't believe. That's not as much Paul's issue as it is what happens next. Because it says that they start speaking evil of the way. In Acts, when it says the way, that's just the way of Jesus. Um, Jesus says that he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. So it seems like that this was just known in that area, in that time, as this is the way. A people of the way, but it says they start speaking evil of the way before the congregation. So then he leaves the synagogue; he withdraws. Um, he doesn't keep fighting them and trying to talk louder than them. It, it was it was not it was not effective anymore. So he he leaves and he goes to the school. It's a hall of Tyrannus, and he teaches there. Um, maybe one quick uh, lesson for us: when we're trying to be effective. With evangelism or we're just trying to uh, shine as lights in this dark world, there are times where we will feel it is ineffective, that, that it is no longer conducive to continuing to talk and try to explain or whatever. That, might. that doesn't mean we stop altogether. We just find another place. That's what Paul did. It wasn't working in the synagogue anymore. He couldn't teach effectively, so he found somewhere else. That, that's a good lesson for us. The solution to rejection is not to shut our mouths and stop shining as lights, but the solution to rejection is to find someone else and somewhere else. Um, Paul stays and preaches the same thing in the same place for two years. And what it says is that God's word is spread throughout all of Asia. Like it doesn't, if you really think about it, I wish I had thought to put the map up here, but he's in Ephesus, but apparently the people he's teaching just start telling more and more people about it. And they really start spreading it around all of Asia. Um, we know Paul traveled to other places, but I think while he's here, he's just staying here. And other people are the ones that are going around telling other people about what, he, what he's teaching. Um, that, that tells us something else about belief, though. That what belief really needs is open hearts and open minds. See, these people that were stubborn, they continued in unbelief. As long as we're stubborn, we will continue in unbelief. We might continue in belief in certain areas, but we will never be fully invested and fully buy in to the teaching of God when we are stubborn. I've realized since I've gotten married how stubborn I am. I I knew that I was a little stubborn um, because, well, I started noticing it when I started uh, comparing myself to my granddad who um, I wish they could be here But I'm also glad he's not here because uh, I'm, I'm just saying that I'm saying he's stubborn So I'm glad he's not here to hear that I think he knows it um, But uh, I, I know started noticing how I was similar to him and we all kept saying he's just so stubborn You know and I'm like well I guess that means I'm stubborn because I'm a lot like him And then I got, I got married and I realized oh wow I'm just so stubborn And I didn't even know it I'm so particular and I didn't even know it you know how much stubbornness can get in the way of just accepting truth? Like we, we, we rationalize and discount what people say because it's like, well, that's true for you. <laughs> Sometimes things are just true and we're just too stubborn to accept them. And it seems like that's what happened here. Stubbornness got in the way of belief. Stubbornness will get in the way of our belief as well. So then God does amazing things through Paul. I don't know if you notice this. It says that in verse 12, even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them like i, I know that mi- we, we, miracles are miraculous so there's something that makes us just be in awe of what is happening we see when jesus heals people or other people are healed and, and it's it's amazing but this is pretty unique this does make me think back to the time where the woman reached out and touched the hem of jesus garment right like maybe there was something about that in that example that people thought if it just touches Paul and I touch that, I can be healed. Some people think that these were things that Paul used as he worked in his trade as a tent maker part-time when he was in Ephesus. We know that from Acts 18, Paul was a tent maker like Aquila and Priscilla. And it looks like in Acts 20 that he continued his trade from time to time. He wasn't always supported by by churches and other Christians. He mentions that in 1 and 2 Thessalonians. So maybe these are just rags that he tossed away that are then picked up and used so that people can be healed. These are just normal things for Paul, though, right? These are just handkerchiefs. These were just aprons. You know, we, we don't have things like this where... Oh, I touched this piece of paper, and when I finish, I'm going to leave it up here. Someone come run and get it. Maybe you'll be healed. It's not like that. We don't, we don't have miracles like that, and, and you definitely don't want to touch anything I've touched, expecting something good from it, like you're going to be better off or something. We, we don't have these things today, but I'll tell you what we do have. We have God working through our normal things, our normal things, to do great things. I, I'll tell you what I mean by that. Um, do you ever have a conversation, an interaction with someone that you think is just nothing? It was just like in passing, and you realize how special that was for them. You just said a nice word, a, a kind thing. And that meant so much to them, it touched them. See what our normal can do? Or, or what about your habit of you go to the same store every Tuesday morning to get your Coke and peanuts or whatever. You go to the same place to get coffee every Friday morning uh, on your way to work. And you have this interaction with the cashier or the uh, waiter or waitress. And you just think, okay, this is not, this is nothing. This is nothing, there's no fruit from this. You don't know. You don't know what God can do with that interaction. You don't know what your example can mean to someone. God can do amazing things with our normal things as well. Not in the same way as, as he did with Paul here, I'm not saying that. But maybe it's a quick phone call or text to someone and it just really lifts them up. How can words lift someone up? They do, though, don't they? Maybe it's you looking around, realizing who you haven't seen in a little while, so you try to encourage them. Maybe it's that person that you thought, well, they already rejected uh, the gospel. I already tried to teach that to them. Uh, There's no point in me reaching out. And then you just check and say, hey, how are you doing? And you just just never know what it can lead to. I, I think that's one lesson I get from this. So that brings us to the main text for our lesson tonight. So I'm going to read verses 13 through 20. We're going to a few points we're going to bring out from, from what happens here in Ephesus. And then I hope that these things will encourage us and spur us on to count the cost of discipleship. Beginning of verse 13. Some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying... I adjure you in the, by Jesus, by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of the Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? That would terrify me. <laughs> they should be terrified. Because the man in whom the evil spirit was, uh, was in leapt on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house, naked and wounded. This became known to all of the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. They counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 Pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Here's the first lesson I think when it comes to counting the cost from of discipleship from Acts 19. We need to humble ourselves. True discipleship means humbling ourselves. There are some people here trying to misuse the name of Jesus, try to take his name and use it as a weapon, use it as a tool for their own glory, and they're humbled by that. They weren't humble before. And maybe they weren't truly humble to the point of being believers and disciples of Jesus, but they were humble. They they had to run out of that house naked and wounded. They tried to use the name of Jesus and the name of Paul as a weapon for their own glory. That's not what true discipleship is. They're exorcists, which means they would be traveling around, casting out demons for a show, probably for a profit. The sons of Sceva are now embarrassed. They thought they had power. They thought they were something And now they realize they're nothing, and everyone else does too. If you you actually think about it, they try to cast out a demon from a person that looks like a crazy person, and then they're the ones that look like crazy people at the end of it. Right? Like this guy, this guy leaps on them, overpowers them, masters all of them, and they have to run out of the house exposed and wounded. They're frantic. You think that that helped the, the, names, the name of Sceva to be something that was respected in this area? I don't think so. You think it helped the name of Jesus to be respected? Well, I think it did, actually. Because there's a lesson here. Because the evil spirit spoke out. The man, said, the man that had the evil spirit said, I know Jesus and I know Paul, but who are you? Jesus, Jesus' name and his power is not something be trifled with. They found that out the hard way. It's actually an interesting comparison. Uh, I talked this morning about the demon-possessed man in Mark 5. And th- this is kind of funny to me. Uh, you might not find it funny, but I think it's funny. So the demon-possessed man, he runs towards Jesus after Jesus gets out of the boat in Mark 5. He's got cuts all over him. He's, he's naked as well. And... Jesus casts out the demon. And then the transition is that now, after the man has been healed, he's sitting in, in his right mind, it says, in Mark 5. So people that have a demon in them look crazy, and they are like wounded and all these things. In Acts 19, who's the ones looking crazy? Who are the, Who's the ones that are wounded? Who, who are the ones that are running around naked? That's the sons of Sceva. The ones that tried to act like they were disciples, taking the name of Jesus and taking it in vain. True discipleship means humbling ourselves. They had not genuinely humbled themselves, so in a way they, they became humble. Maybe not to the point of actually being disciples though. So here's a question for us when it comes to thinking about the cost of us following Jesus. Colossians three sixteen and 17 says that we need to do everything in the name of the Lord, right? Whatever you do in word or deed, do you all in the name of the Lord? Is that true for you? Do you do everything in the name of the Lord? Or do you do some things in His name, but it's not in keeping with who He is? Do you do some things in His name and still claim to be following Him and a disciple of Him, but really you're not. You're trying to be boastful of yourself. That's kind of similar to what these men did. True true discipleship means we humble ourselves. I think another lesson we get from from these guys um, is that the cost of discipleship means choosing to decrease as God increases. We're choosing to decrease as God increases. You know, John the Baptist is a great example for us in this. He knew from the time that he started his ministry that one would come after him, that from his own words... Which was really the, the words of God that were prophesied about him. He was not worthy to even tie a sandal, right? He's like, and he knew there was gonna be a time where I've got to fall back and he's gotta increase. And he was willing to do that. Are we willing to do that? Sometimes we mock the athletes that say glory to God, or they just say, I have to thank my first I have to thank my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. They say that first. That's the first thing out of their mouths after they win the Super Bowl or whatever it is. I didn't watch uh, the end of the Super Bowl, so I don't know if that happened this year. So I'm not calling anyone out specifically. Well, we kind of mock that because we think, ah, it's not, that's not legit. That's not real. Yeah, people around us in our daily lives think that we're all about ourselves. But they know that we go to worship on Sunday. We seem to be boastful and arrogant and all about ourselves and greedy people that are just all about the money and all about, you know, reputation and lifting up our own names, but yet they know that we're going to be here for Bible class on Wednesday. I don't know what's worse. Saying glory to God and, and not really living it out? Or saying, well, of course I'm living it out. And people around you are like, I don't, I don't see that. The cost of discipleship means that we choose to decrease as God increases. We are, we are signing up to choose to sacrifice And decrease and be the lesser for the sake of Christ that's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus because all we want is for him to be exalted in our lives not for us to be exalted in our own life being a disciple means we're counting on him to exalt us one day that's a really hard thing to to do for a lot of us because we feel like if no one pays attention to me and if no one, I don't know, lifts me up, then I guess I gotta do it for myself. If no one's going to say, say, look at how great Blake is, well, I guess I gotta talk about how great I am. And that's something that our culture wants us to buy into and just don't buy into it, okay? Social media, I don't know how, I, I don't know this, this group that well to know if like, a lot of you are just really addicted to social media, but that's basically what social media becomes for most of us. As a way to exalt ourselves, as a way to boast about ourselves, we need to be careful. We need to be careful that that doesn't affect us more long term than we realize. Because when we're a disciple of Jesus, we understand that He's the one that we exalt. We don't exalt ourselves. All right, I I want to keep uh, looking at this, uh, but now we're going to stop looking at the sons of Sceva and what happens with them, and now we're going to look at what happens at the beginning of verse 17. Let's reread verse 17 through 20. So this becomes known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. It says, Fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who are now believers, so they're now believers, they're currently believers, came confessing and divulging their practices. A number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. They, count, they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. Well, that, that sounds like a lot. Just to put it in context, apparently, and I'm sure this is different now because of inflation over the last couple of years, but. Apparently, this would have been something to the sum of 4 to $5 million today. How committed were they to giving up of their, themselves? How committed were they to, to following Christ? They had to count the cost, didn't they? They said, okay, I, I understand now that, that following Jesus and believing that he's the Christ means I've got to give this up. I've got to come and confess that these are things that, I'm, that I've been doing. I, I, didn't, I didn't know that they were wrong, but now I realize they're wrong. So this is what I've been doing. They were so open about it. And then they have a big bonfire with all of their books. And it's not like these were books that none of them cared about. This was a high value. They just, they just toss in the fire. We don't, we don't do things like this, or at least most of the time we don't. I will tell you about kind of a funny, um, it was funny to me at least, funny situation. Not that long ago, I was at a, a, like a camp out. It was a different kind of camp out though. <laughs> and we, were, we had a little bonfire going and uh, someone wanted for everyone to write down like uh, your greatest fear or something like that. I think that's what it was. Um, I probably have this wrong, so Liz will have to correct me later. It was something like, write down the thing that makes you most anxious or most fearful. And um, I was like, oh, okay, I don't know what we're doing. Uh, definitely don't want to share this. So, you know, wrote it down, and then there was this, like, kind of, again, if you know me, you know that I wasn't all on board for this, but I went went along with it. Like, okay, now let's throw it in the fire. Now it's gone. I'm like, okay, it's not gone, right? Like, I I mean, the paper's gone, but this thing is not gone. That was kind of, like, hokey and a little bit strange for me. But this is a big deal for these people. In front of everybody, they bring their magic books, and they say, yeah, it's gone. I'm done with that. And they really were. You realize how life-changing this was for these people and they were already believers so that, that brings us to our next point believers continue to confess and sacrifice we need to continue to confess and sacrifice we're not done confessing just when we say yes I believe that Jesus is the son of God and yes I believe that when I'm baptized my sins are washed away we're not done confessing we're not done sacrificing just when we make one change Okay, I guess I gotta stop cursing, okay? And I don't know what those things are for you, you don't know what those things are for me, but we will constantly be seeing things that we need to sacrifice if we are truly disciples. The reality is that this, this whole thing with confession and sacrifice and realizing the cost and actually being willing to give it up, it gets harder and harder as we go sometimes, doesn't it? Because it gets more personal. It gets, it gets more real. It, get, it gets more daunting sometimes. I mentioned this, this morning that there are sometimes families that are broken up because of faith. Because someone is committed to being a disciple and they're not going to look back. They're that committed. That's a cost. That's a high cost. But if we're disciples of Jesus we should already be ready to give up everything to follow Him. Let's go to Luke 14. We'll come back and reference Acts 19, but let's go to Luke 14. Jesus tried to warn us that this would be the case a couple of different times. And in Luke 14, we're going to start in verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied Jesus, and He turned and said to them, If anyone comes to Me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, Yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation to ask for terms of peace. So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. If you were currently a disciple of Jesus when he says this, you'd be saying, I think, I think you got the order of your message wrong. I think that you're supposed to say that later, right? You're supposed to say that way later when we get more and more people, okay? Like you shouldn't be saying this right now. This is, this is not gonna be an attractive message to a lot of people. This is what Jesus says. He tries to prepare people for what it means to follow him. He tries to let them know this, this is what it takes. It takes prioritizing him it takes loving Jesus over family. It takes suffering shame and taking up our own cross. It takes giving up everything or willing, being truly willing to give up everything and renounce all that we have, the things that we hold dear, the things that we think of as being so important. You know what it takes? It takes realizing we'll never feel at home in this world. That's the cost of following Christ. Those people in Acts 19... They burned their books. They confessed openly, this is, this is what I'm doing, and I realize that's wrong now. Is that something that, that we'd be willing to do? I mean, I've, I've never, I mean, I burned that piece of paper that, that day, that night at the camp out. That didn't really mean anything, though, not, not to me at least. I wonder what I have that's in my life that I should just burn. What are the things that I should just truly throw away? Because it's of no real value. And it's just, it keeps being something that that causes me to slip up. It keeps being a distraction for me. What are the things that that you should just burn and give up? Whatever that is, that's the cost. Jesus wants us to count the cost, but he doesn't want us to count the cost and, and not understand what also the reward is. If you go back, if you're in Luke 14 still... Go back just a little bit. Go back to to just verse 23. This is at the end of a a parable that Jesus tells. He says, The master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. Like all the people that I invited, they didn't come. Okay, go find other people. We're going to fill this house. There's going to be a good banquet meal. So Jesus says in verse 24, For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. You know what we get if we count the cost and we're willing to give up everything and pursue Christ? We we get to feast with him in his banquet. We get to commune with him forever. We get to be in his father's house, a place that he has gone to prepare for us, and we get to be with him forever. You know what we get if we count the cost and we follow Christ and we stay committed? We give up what it takes to truly follow him. We inherit the kingdom. We get to be with God forever. It's not all bad. It's not all doom and gloom. We might not be at home in this life. We might suffer shame in this life. But we'll be at home with God forever. The cost is worth it. It's worth it to give up everything. It's worth it to quit that job. It's worth it to throw away your laptop. It's worth it to get off social media. It's worth it to, to confess and be open so that you can be forgiven. It's worth it. We go back to Acts chapter 19 and and that last verse that we read already a couple of times in verse 20 said the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. I realize that that probably means and and I believe it does mean that it prevailed mightily and, and just spread across the area in Ephesus and all of Asia. But, you know as disciples we need to count the cost and part of the cost is that we need to allow God's word to prevail over us we need to be overcome by his word we need to be people that when we read something that God has said that we believe so whole wholeheartedly that it's true that we're willing to just say okay I'm gonna do that and he prevails over us in that way if you compare verse 16 and verse 20 it's kind of interesting Those sons of Sceva were overpowered by the evil spirit. And then here at the end of verse 20, those people that are willing to humble themselves and follow Christ, now they are overpowered by God. The same humility and openness of heart and mind that we talked about that leads to belief is the same thing that allows God's word to overpower us and change us. So, do you believe that there's power in God's word? We sing it, right? We we talk about that, and I, I think that we believe it. But there are times where we are stubborn. There are times where we are not willing to let His power overcome us. Well, are you open enough for Him to conquer and change you, even if that means confessing openly some sins that you've been practicing in secret? Are you resisting His power, and are you resisting the cost? Sometimes those changes are big, and they're grand, and sometimes they seem small. I don't know what the changes are for you. I don't know how you need to be overpowered by God in that way. But I'm sure if you don't notice something now, you will soon. We realize that there are costs all the time. There's desires that we, that we give up. There's things we have to turn away from, and it happens all the time. But I want to remind us of the benefit. The benefit is that we sit at the banquet table with God. The benefit is we feast with God. Forever, the benefit is the same thing that we see in Matthew 11. When Jesus says, "Come, learn of me, take up, take on my yoke," he says, "And you will find rest." He says, "You'll find rest for your souls." Um, if you have struggled to actually count the cost and to give up your own sinful, fleshly desires to follow Christ, you probably feel very not at rest you probably have a sense of unrest that is regular and continual. But if you will just come to Christ and give that up, realize that the cost is worth it, then you'll find rest for your soul. If you're here tonight and you need to become a disciple of Jesus by confessing him openly, we implore you to do that. If you need to repent and be baptized, we implore you to do that. If you realize there's sins that you've been living in and you need help getting rid of those things and you need to confess those things openly, we implore you to do that. If Jesus were here tonight, you know what he would say to you when you think about counting the cost? He'd say, you know, if you do this, if you give your life to me, if you give up these things, there's no going back. He sang that song this morning. No turning back. You put your hand to the plow, don't turn back. But you know what else he would say if he was here, I think? One of the things he would say is, I'm with you, always. That's the comfort. We give up all to follow Christ, and we get him with us. There's power in that. If you need believers here, and you need help, if you need to repent of sins, and you confess something, we are here for you. Let's make sure we're counting the cost and not turning back, and we're following Christ. Let's stand and sing the invitation song.